0: Snuff Production. Bruce Bryan went into the prison system as a 23-year-old. Over 30 years later, he was released after he turned 53. Wrongly incarcerated for the murder of an 11-year-old boy, a crime he says he did not commit. Bruce says the book Long Walk to Freedom changed his life. That's when I decided I wasn't going to serve time. I was going to have the time serve me. Every bit of my time, I began to utilise in the best way possible. In the conversation that follows, Bruce and I discuss his time in some of America's worst prisons, the power of holding on to hope, finding light in a higher source, and how you can take away a man's freedom, but you can't take away his imagination, humour
1: or joy. For me, in my heart and in my mind, I never belonged there. So I never internalized the values, the bitterness that existed and what allowed me to build that those guards around my heart and to do what an old timer told me years ago. You gotta protect your soul, gotta protect your soul.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Bruce Bryan's story is nothing short of harrowing. In its essence, this conversation is about finding presence in pain and being able to see the light even within all the darkness. My hope is that this discussion with Bruce inspires you to stand up for what is right, even in the face of adversity. Bruce Bryan, how did you get charged with a crime that you didn't commit?
1: To be quite honest with you, it's quite common in the States. It's quite common. Um, it happens far too often. And you could be in the wrong place, as I was, in the wrong place, wrong neighborhood, so to speak, which is a regular neighborhood in America, particularly in marginalized African-American and Latino communities. And when 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 something happens, they tend to incarcerate a group of people, particularly in Queens, New York. They incarcerate whoever was... Uh, present in the area. Sometimes prosecutors um, fabricate evidence in order for their careers to go to the next level, just as the prosecutor did in the Central Park Five and and in so many other cases. I mean, they say 5% of people in prison are wrongfully convicted. Wow. And if, if if you look at that from a perspective of being, there being 2.2 2.3 roughly m- million people incarcerated in the United States, you're talking about 100,000 people. And, it, and and to be quite frank with you, I think those numbers are much higher. Mm. So you talk about 100,000 people wrongfully convicted throughout the country. So, back in 1993, a young a, a shootout at what what happened with two rival members Some guys that were robbers in the community and other guys that were hustling in the community. And during the course of this shooting, one of the robbers uh, happened to be with his stepson and his stepson was was hit by a stray bullet that went through a beauty salon window and hit him. And as a result of this, it became a high profile case. And when you talk about high profile cases, people, um, you know, the media, it becomes sensationalized. You know, prosecutors get involved, officers get involved. And for the most part, essentially any young black person who may have had a criminal record, was it in the community or from the community who's marginalized, will do. They'll satisfy the bill, you know, for the arrest. And that's just how um, the criminal system of injustice is built here in America.
0: So how did it go that you were charged with this murder of this 11-year-old boy?
1: Because when the person that actually was engaging in the shooting, I had been talking to him prior to the shooting happening. So prior to the shooting actually happening, I had talked to him. The neighborhood is, Geyar, is considered Guyar Bua Boulevard, which is a drug and people sell marijuana, which is legal now. They sell that on the corners. So in the process of me being in the neighborhood to change my niece's my girlfriend's niece, this is costume for Halloween, because this happened October thirtieth, nineteen ninety-three, the day before Halloween. Her niece Savitri had a costume that was too big for her, so she wanted to change her costume and get some stuff for a Halloween party. So, being, there was a Halloween, there was a party store, not a Halloween store, a party store in that area, and being in that area when things like this happened, the fact that they saw me speaking to this guy prior to it happening, they automatically included me inside of this case. But on a much, much deeper level. The prosecutor, former Queens prosecutor John Scarpa, he has always had a history since the 80s of engaging in misconduct to satisfy a conviction. There's been several cases that he's been involved in that have been overturned. As a result of his misconduct as a prosecutor, he was pushed out of the, um, the Queens DA's office and he was essentially forced to become a defense attorney. Now, here in here in the States, if you're a prosecutor, you have what they call qualified immunity, meaning that a prosecutor can charge you and I, Sarah, and send us to prison for 10, 20 years or for the rest of our life. And not one thing can happen to that prosecutor, even if he's engaged in misconduct because he has qualified immunity. However, defense attorneys, they don't have the same immunity. So when he was, when former Queens prosecutor John Scarpa, and I want you to remember that name because you can Google it and you can see everything that I'm saying to you. Um, He was forced out and he became a defense attorney. As a defense attorney, he continued in his misconduct. Um, He continued in his behavior as a rogue attorney.
0: So he was putting people in prison knowing that they did not commit the crimes just to tick a box. Absolutely. Oh my God.
1: He was caught by the federal government for bribing a witness to say that his defendant, who he was defending, his client, who he was defending on two homicides, who was a gang member, he wanted the witness to say that his client didn't do it. The federal government got him on wiretap doing everything that I'm saying to you. And he was subsequently arrested and sentenced to two and a half years in the federal prison system and disbarred from practicing law.
0: So you get put in prison for 29 years wrongfully committed and he gets two and a half years.
1: I can ring off a whole slew of cases that he was involved in where these cases were subsequently overturned years later after guys did 10, 15, some 20 years in prison. They were overturned because of his misconduct. Wow. I was fortunate enough to find the strength and a wherewithal to pursue higher education and make something of my life while incarcerated. And the New York State Governor, Kathy Hochul, granted me clemency. And the new prosecutor in Queens by the name of Melinda Katz, who is the head DA, she didn't oppose me being granted executive clemency in December of 2022. And my sentence was commuted by the governor. And in April, the last week of April 2023, I was released from prison. So it's been almost four months And I count the days of freedom. Sometimes I'm just basking in every hour.
0: So you were only released in April this year, which is just, it's such a blessing to be able to have this conversation with you. And I wonder, going back though, what, I mean, when you got that sentence, how did you feel knowing that you did not commit this crime?
1: Every bit of air was sucked out of my life on the day that I was uh, convicted. Every bit of air was sucked out of my life. It took everything in me to stand. Every bit of air was sucked out of my mother's life, my father's life, my family's life. And it was completely devastating. You know, and I I understand that, you know, people are hurt when they lose a loved one. And sometimes people just want vengeance and they don't care who pays for the loss of their loved one. However, I think it becomes a disservice when you don't mind sending the wrong person to prison for the loss of your loved one, when you just want someone to pay. And most crime victims, that's how they feel. They just want someone to pay. They say this is justice, Mm. right? When someone pays for a crime that they committed. I'm not quite sure the definition of justice is defined in that way.
0: Absolutely. And also I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like there was this prosecutor that knew that he was doing the wrong thing, but everyone else probably thought you were the guy. They probably thought they were putting the right person in prison because of the guy's false evidence
1: absolutely absolutely people often feel like that um and throughout history that's how it's been um, whoever the prosecutor says did the crime and and you know people that don't really know they say well the first question people ask is well how did he get arrested why did they choose him and and in some in some instances i like to be completely blunt is that the criminal justice system here in america is um racism is baked into that system into that structure so um the marginalized and those that are uh, uh, black and brown people, they usually make up the vast majority of people in prison, right? And I'm sure that's that's quite the same in Australia.
0: Yeah, marginalized communities always. A lot of our indigenous community are put in, in prison. And yeah, it's terrible. Let's talk a bit about your childhood. Where did you grow up in America? How was your younger years?
1: I grew up in Queens my um, and Manhattan. What happened was my family, my mother and my father, migrated from the West Indies. My father migrated from Antigua, West Indies. Five of my older siblings were all born in Antigua. Myself and my younger brother were born in America. My mother migrated from Dominica, another Caribbean island, a very small island. Antigua is very small. Antigua probably holds 80,000, 90,000 people the most. Eighth grade education, both parents. Um, yet they were able to do a lot with a little home was always filled with love and integrity. You know, so we were able to to thrive. Right. They always uh, impressed upon us the importance of higher education and whatever you do in life, be the best that you can be in life. And in my earlier years, we were in Manhattan until I was about eight or nine years old. And then we moved into the home that I'm in now in Queens in Queens, New York. And we've had the home since 1978 for roughly about 45 years. My mother, I'm blessed to still have her. She's 80. Unfortunately, my father passed away in um, 2017. I was, you know, I, for, fortunately, I was able to um, attend the uh, the ceremony prior to the funeral, the wake. I was, I was uh, allowed to attend, even though I was shackled and in a lot of pain and, and you know, psychological, emotional pain. I was able to say um, say my goodbyes prior to him dying. I knew he was sick, so I was able to. Um, I wouldn't say prepare myself because there's no way to actually tell someone to prepare to lose the closest thing to you, right? But I think that I um, I was devastated when it happened. But I understood that in prison in America, when you when you uh, dealt a hand like that, you know, life just goes on. Like mm-hmm. in the next minute, it's business as usual, right? So a chaplain comes and tells you that your loved one has passed away. And the next thing they're calling you to the chow hall to go have lunch. So there's no grieving process. Uh, There's no bereavement process. You know, you have to suck it up and deal with it on your own, which is horrible because not everyone experiences trauma in the same way. Not everyone responds to it in the same way.
0: So you get put in prison and you get put in some of the most hardcore prisons in America, and you get moved around quite a few times. Can you tell us a bit of an insight into what these prisons are like? Because I think the prisons in America are very different to the prisons in Australia.
1: The prisons in America are very dark and very cold uh, places. And I don't mean just physically cold or just physically dark. I mean, like the spirit, the spirit of humanity is often not present the spirit of empathy or compassion is not present. Um, So there's a lot of suicide. Uh, There are murders that happen, there are stabbings, there are uh, slashings, there are, you know, violence is at an all time high. Uh, Gangs are pervasive throughout the system. And there are so many from Hispanic gangs to white gangs, all blending together, right? Um, Bloods, Crips, you know, you name it. Uh, those gangs exist. I've never been in a gang in my life.
0: Yeah.
1: I've not joined a gang in my life. I never felt the need to be um, validated by a lot of people or outsiders. You know, my validation came from my spirituality, my meditation, and I read a lot. And, um, you know, I, I, I held on to the values that my parents instilled in me, right? Because you can come from humble beginnings and still have a strong and good value system.
0: Mm. But I wonder in prison, they don't pick on you if you're not in a gang?
1: In some cases, that is the case. In some cases, people experience abuse that are not involved in gangs. People experience abuse who try to um, stay to themselves. So that is is quite common. I try to surround myself with mature older guys who were implementing programs that can help self-development. So... When I came to prison, there was a group of guys called, they called themselves the Resurrection Study Group, which was founded by by a prisoner who has since passed on by the name of Eddie Ellis and another guy named Larry White. Um, both of these guys were, are known as the founders of the New York State prison movement. So these guys were conscious, educated. They understand the dynamics of, the prison industrial complex and what it was designed to do. And they took it upon themselves to to grab onto younger guys, guys that they that they felt were reachable, guys that they felt needed them. So for me, um I remember how I got involved. I got involved in the resurrection study group when an older guy, I was I was on my way to the law library. The law library is a place where you study the law, and try to fight for your freedom. So I was on my way to the law library in a prison called Greenhaven. Greenhaven is the maximum security prison in New York State that held some of the, over the years, some of the most famous gangsters or mafia guys were in these prisons, right? I mean, these prisons were horrible. This guy stopped me. He said, young brother, I always see you going to the law library. He said, I want you to come to a class that we have. And I was taken aback because I didn't know this guy. So I said, what class are you talking about? He said, the Resurrection Study Group, it's a bunch of us, we teach it. But after you learn it, you're going to be required to teach it. This guy's trying to make me learn something so that I can teach other people. So I said, I'll see about it. He says, no, I'm going to make sure you're in there. I said, what do you mean you're going to make sure? And so it was a little bit of back and forth. Um, Lo and behold, in the next, say, two to three weeks, a little piece of paper came to the prison bars and said I was required to go to what they call the school building. And I went and I said, um, what is this for? And the officer said, oh, you're in that classroom over there. So I went in the classroom with a bunch of guys I hadn't known before. And they were sitting in the class. And there was also a prisoner who was teaching the class. Now, the guy that told me I should come, I didn't see him. But the guys in there already knew that one of their uh, colleagues had submitted my name for me to go. So it began teaching me about the history, history of the prison system, the history of people of color, the history of America, right? And you begin to learn about these different public figures and learning the history. I began to embrace, it was, this was like twice a week, you would know? go. I thought it was nice because there was a place where you can talk to other people and have real conversation. Mm. And, you know, guys were talking about their families and, you know, what they meant to them and stuff like that. And I felt I didn't want to be in the yard where all the violence was happening, where all the drug dealing was happening, where the stabbings were happening, where the fights were happening, where the basketball and the TV was, um, you know, and the drug dealing and the getting high because prison is a, it's actually a microcosm of society. The things that happen in society actually happen in prison, right? You know, guys gamble, guys engage in fighting, guys engage in entrepreneurship, whether it's legal, illegal or not, it's still a form of entrepreneurship, right?
0: So you're in this prison and you're learning all these things, which is actually a good thing and and helping you get through those tough times. Can you tell us a bit about what a normal day in prison is like? When do you wake up? How much time do you get outside? What food do you eat? That kind of stuff. You wake up. What time?
1: About six o'clock in the morning, there's a bell that goes on. Put your light on to stand up. Six in the morning. And there are over a thousand people in the prison. So the guards are walking, self, self, counting while you're standing there. For me, I didn't, I, once I was up at six o'clock in the morning for the count, I never made it back to sleep. I never made it back to sleep. No. And then breakfast is about 7:30. It's not mandatory. You don't have to go. What happens is at about 6:15, after the after the guards finish doing their count, maybe 6:30, one of them comes around with a clipboard. And on the clipboard, it's like a waiter. He's like a waiter. He comes cell to cell and he says, Where are you going today? Um, and they don't call you by your name, they call you by yourself. So I was in forty cell for a while, so they would say forty cell. Where are you going? And I might say I'm going to breakfast, and I'm going to school, right? Or I might say I'm going to school for the last for the last five or six years. I think I never went inside the mess hall to eat. I eat the food that my family brought from, like the canned goods, the packaged goods, the seal out tuna fish and stuff like that. Your family's allowed to bring you about well, not they can't bring it for you anymore. They can actually mail it to you um, through a vendor about 40 pounds every month. So I would stretch that 40 pounds of food and make it last, as well as the commissary that I bought in the institutions. So my day was about at seven thirty eight, about 8 o'clock, I would go to school. After I graduated from college in 2017, I graduated with my bachelor's of science degree from Mercy College. After I graduated, I became a part of the organization that funded my education. An organization called Hudson Link, when there was no or when we were no longer allowed to get Pell grants and tap grants to pursue higher education and, and prison stopped affording us college um, because guys that went home with college degrees never came back. After I graduated, I became a part of it and I began helping other men so that they can pursue higher education and get their degrees as well.
0: You're in prison learning all this stuff. But, you know, there's so much darkness around you, a lot of suicide, people getting stabbed. How does that not become all immersive?
1: For me, in my heart and in my mind, I never belonged there. So I never internalised the values, the bitterness that existed and what allowed me to build that those gods around my heart and, to do what an old timer told me years ago when I first went in, the same guy that brought me in that class, by the way. He told me many years ago, over 25 years ago, maybe in 1997, he said to me, you gotta protect your soul, gotta protect your soul. And I never understood what he meant. It took me years to fully grasp what he what he was saying. So I created this barrier around myself and began to. I said, I would reject the prison values and I would hold on to the values that my family instilled, right? I would reject prison. I would not internalize it. Even though we are creatures are habit, and there's some things that, some habits that you pick up, for the most part, I would do everything to protect my soul. And that meant embracing spirituality. For me, it was the Bible. I read the Torah. I read the Bible. I read the Holy Quran. For me, it was the Bible. For me, it was going to church, right? Sometimes two, three times a week, Bible study, church on Sunday, uh, Bible study on Wednesday, maybe Bible study on Monday, just to be in that um, atmosphere Mm. to and and to engage in communal prayer. While at the same time, when I went back in that cage, I would embrace um, individual prayer and meditation, you know, affirmations, I would write, um, what do you write, sometimes I've written letters to God, right, that I would hold for a week or so. Or two weeks and and, th- and dispose of it. And then I would write, I might write another letter to God, right? Sometimes I'll write just to express gratitude. It wasn't asking for anything. It was expressing appreciation for everything that I already had, hmm. despite certain circumstances that I was in. And then having a decent family support helped me tremendously. But if I would say the one thing that got me through, it would have to be my faith, my faith in God in knowing that one day he would open those doors.
0: And a lot of people in these situations would like go the other way and lose their faith in God. Mm-hmm. But how did your faith in God always stay and, and and never wavered?
1: Well, for me it was, I didn't ask, you know, why me? I just asked, like, give me the strength to endure whatever it is that you actually have me going through. Mm-hmm. I, like the poem Footprints, if I can't walk, then carry me through you know if I can't walk then carry me through Right, and, and what lesson is involved in this right what lesson because if you change the way you look at things things change the way that they look mm. so I made a conscious decision that I would change the way that I think so that you know I would not process things in the same way that a person who was angry or hostile would for me I wasn't serving time I was having time serve me right? Having time served me to the best of my ability, our most precious commodity, right? The, the one thing that you can never get back is time, right? I, you know, when my father was on his deathbed, the only thing that I asked for was more time with him, right? The only thing that I missed was the time the time that I had with him, not how much money he had, not any possessions, not the house that he was able to put us in. Um, you know, not any toys that I may have not gotten when I was young, not anything material, but time, right? I value time. I saw time differently. I had a different appreciation for time. So even today, uh, you know, I just always try to give the people that mean the most to me time, mm. right? Like my, my, my 80-year-old mother. Um, after this podcast tonight, you know, I may I may go lay right next to her. I may lay next to her for the rest of the evening and just keep her company and give her that time.
0: That's so beautiful. Being present with the person that we're with is is so important and giving them that time is so true. You mentioned that you did meditation in jail. Like what kind of meditation would you do?
1: Um, Breathing exercises, just trying to be still and clear my thoughts, meditating on particular scriptures and seeing what, the spirit wanted me to get from it, whether it was a scripture or a book. It could have been uh, The Road Less Traveled by Dr. Scott Peck. It could have been Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It could have been one of my favorites, which is Left to Tell by Immaculate Ilabegiza. There were powerful things in there that were said by, um, you know, people who, uh, who, who suffered in the Rwanda genocide. Right in this book, and I was able to grasp and find out what it is that the human spirit possesses that allows certain people to thrive and to gain a sense of resilience, which I believe can—you know is something that you can build up, right? And, and how do we face challenges and adversity? Do we look at the blessing that's involved in it? Or do we just, you know, if we just mourn, Then we never get to see the true meaning of what our experience is trying to teach us.
0: In Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, I've read that book. It's so beautiful. And there's a really interesting piece in it on hope and the power of hope. And Mm -hmm. when the Holocaust survivors, him being one of them, went through that time, he found that, you know, the ones that had hope ended up surviving a lot longer or just survived, Mm -hmm. and the ones that didn't, they would die earlier. And even if they had the same kind of ailments as the people that had hope, those people with hope would live longer. And I wonder what that idea of hope, what that provided you when you were in prison.
1: Hope was the wind beneath my wings, right? It was the wind beneath my wings um, in every step of the way because once hope dies, you die. Mm -hmm. Once you stop believing that you can, you no longer can, Mm. right? There is so much power in the way that we think and view the world around us. There's so much spiritual power in in our breath and in our heartbeat, right? And in our vision, and I'm not talking about the, the, the physical vision, but in the third eye vision, what it is that we see for ourselves and want for ourselves. My people perish for lack of vision, right? My people suffer for lack of vision, is a scripture in the Bible, right? So where there is no vision, the people perish.
2: Hmm. You know,
1: the Bible says there's no vision, the people perish. So if you have no vision for yourself, it's how you see things, right? It's just it's fascinating. There's even not to not to get too scriptural, but there's even a scripture in the Bible where they talk about Caleb when the people Came, the, I believe it was the uh, the Philistine army when they came to Caleb, and they said to him, "The people." It's in the book of Samuel. They said the people are like giants in our own eyes. Right? They didn't say that they were giants because they were actually giants. They were giants in our own eyes. Mm. So when you saw them in a certain way, and you saw yourself as being inferior in that same way that we speak right then you've that you've already lost half the battle so how you see yourself Mm -hmm. um, the ability to understand that despite where you are you're not defined by your physical conditions i was placed in solitary confinement before and in solitary confinement they take everything from you so whatever little property or shirts that your family may have sent you or you know um, Just anything material. They may leave you inside in the cell for four months, six months. Six months. Yeah, some guys for years, um, you come outside the cell one hour a day handcuffed and you go into a cage, literally a cage. You don't have any possessions. And oftentimes people define themselves by the things, by stuff. When you're stripped of everything that you own, everything that you have, then you have to ask yourself, now, who are you, Mm. right? Who are you? And if you can still find and see greatness within yourself without stuff, Mm. right? When you can still love what you see when you look in the mirror, when all you have is you. Even with your regrets. Many people say they don't have regrets. I have regrets, but the difference is I've learned to continuously love myself despite the regrets that I have. Mm. That's important, right? Self-love is important. It's empowering.
0: When you're in that solitary confinement, and that's like a dark cell where there's no windows or anything like that, and that's just you in this tiny cell for months on end, I mean, how do you mentally even start to move through being
1: in there? You have to pray, meditate, um, read books like Victor Frankl, read books like, I even read The Secret. and. What I would do, I would look at, I would take the book and I would write down. I might still have the book in the closet and I would write down because I brought a lot of books home with me. Books were my prized possession while I was in prison.
0: So, in solitary confinement, they still allow you to like read and write?
1: Yes, you can read and write. You have a little plastic pen so you can write. That writing is very cathartic, Mm. Um, it's very therapeutic. You know, for me, I would write all the time. I would read all the time. I would meditate. So I would take the secret and look at the Bible and see how the scriptures kind of the law of attraction, the law of suggestion, and different things. Yeah. They were like ancient texts, right? That were that coincided with much of what was said in the secret. It was just delivered differently. Mm. So I use these things to help my help myself get through the uh the pain.
0: You have a wonderful lawyer that starts working with you. How did that come about? How did he find you and then want to help you get free? And did you visualise that in prison?
1: Yes. I wrote lawyers every week. In prison, you allow five free letters a week, but they have to be going to legal entities. The other letters you have to put a stamp on to your family and your friends. But if you're writing a law firm or, or independent lawyer, you get a free statement, that letter is free. I've written 10, maybe 20,000 letters, utilizing the five free letters every week to attorneys, to private investigators, to, um, to countless people, to media people, you name it, right? And, I, and it's the same way that I met my attorney, Josh Duman. I met him through 2020, I saw him on an episode of 2020 and I wrote him, he never responded. So I wrote him again, and he never responded. And then I wrote him again. And some time went by. A a guy, an older guy, who has been in prison a little while, he's actually Muslim, sent me a message with someone coming in from the recreation in the yard and said, such and such said that you should call this person when you get a chance. The person was 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 a paralegal who was incarcerated before by the name of Derek Hamilton. Before I called Derek Hamilton, I called the gentleman by the name of uh, Jason Flom. Jason Flom is actually um, the founder of Wrongful Conviction Podcast. He's also, he's also a big music exec here in America. And when I called Jason Flom, I asked him, did he know an attorney by the name of Josh Dublin? I said, the name wrong. I'll never forget it. And he said, I don't know a Josh Dublin, but I know Josh Dubin. And he's a very good friend of mine. I said, "Someone told me to call because he's expressing interest in my case." Jason Flom said, "No, he's not expressing interest in your case. He's taking your case, and he's gonna he's gonna get you out of there. And I was in the yard, and I was uh, I was smiling from ear to ear, but at the same time, you um, you know, you're kind of reluctant to just accept that. But I know it's this coming from him. It's it's you know. It's pretty solid, right? So he said you should call him. So I may have called and didn't get him, and then the next thing you know, he was on the visit in the living room, and he had already done some research when he came to visit. And I was excited. I was overjoyed. You know, I cried. I asked him why didn't he write me back? Uh, you know, it was just it was a moment because um, I definitely I didn't I didn't give him a pass on it when we initially met. And we bonded, but I brought it to his attention that I had written him several times, and he didn't respond. And then I saw him kind of well up with tears. He felt bad, and he said to me, uh, I said, you know, thank God that you're here now. And he says, no, I I understand, and I feel this way because I know that a letter would have given you hope. Hmm. And I said, you're right, you're right, because when hope goes, your life goes.
0: How many years was it from him working with you till you were allowed to be free?
1: About three years.
0: And then, as you mentioned, you came out only in April of this year of jail. Can you tell us a bit about, like, the moments when you walked out those gates and your sister was there to meet you and there were other people as well?
1: Just um, overjoyed, overjoyed. In a lot of instances, you know... It didn't even seem real. And each time that I think about that moment, it brings me to tears because it was like, it was like I was a newborn baby Hmm. just coming out of I had fought so hard. I had prayed so hard. I had hoped so hard. Uh, I've spent countless um, sleepless nights, countless sleepless nights, when I say countless, I mean thousands of sleepless nights crying myself to sleep, and you know those those scars they don't they, we carry them with us, right? These are the things that we carry. No one serves time that way and walks out unscathed. You know, we carry so much from the trauma of losing a loved one from you know witnessing violence on a daily basis, uh, being treated as a number, right? And and prison is one of the most dehumanizing conditions that a person can find themselves in. People look at you as a number. They don't look at you as a human. And so for me, it's um, it's like the nightmare. It's like coming out of a nightmare. It's coming out of a nightmare, waking up. And even to this day, sometimes I gotta pinch myself and say, is it really real, right? You know, on the weekends, I just go walk in the park and watch the animals in the park. It's one of the things I just enjoy doing because I can. People say, well, why do you always go by yourself? I said, because I can. My freedom is being able to choose and having options. And there you didn't have much to choose from. You couldn't walk out when you wanted to. So the fact that I can walk out and I can leave you here tonight and I can go to a park by myself if I choose to. It's those things that maybe many people take for granted that I yearn to have back in my life. And having it back in my life, I value every moment.
0: How was it seeing the stars in the sky and and walking on grass and those simple things?
1: There were things that I visualised for years, you know, basking in my freedom and just marking things off my checklist that I want to do. I still want to swim with dolphins. I still want to travel to Australia. And I mean that. I really want to travel there and see the world and meet the people because life is about relationships. Mm. You know, it's the strongest, the strongest ships that we can build are relationships, right?
2: Mm.
1: You know, not the yachts or the other ships or, you know, the things that we ship overseas. You know, the most important things that, that we can build are relationships. So for me, it's just, it's still surreal every single day, being able to go outside, get on the train, and say I'm going to the park or I'm going to see a phone. means everything.
0: When you, like, reflect on your time in jail, and obviously hope was, like, a huge piece of that, what other spiritual values or or things did you use that you think now visualisation would be another, I would say, that you think really got you through all those years?
1: I think I I, I made a conscious decision to educate myself. Yeah. I think education is so important for people incarcerated.
0: I think it's important for everyone. Like I do this podcast and speak to people like yourself because I think if more people can hear the views of different people, that's education.
1: That's education, that's information and it's powerful. But books, there's something about picking up a book and being able to read it and have that book take you to a place that you never dreamed of being, right? And you learn some things from this book, these words. So for me, that is so important. Books are just, I used to get mad at myself sometimes when I'm reading a good book and it's time to end, right? So I would take my time reading books, especially good ones because you did not want them to end. And, they, and books can um, conjure up different emotions, right? Books, books can make you sad when you bury yourself and the books can make you happy. They can make you smile. One of the things I used to do was, I read a book many years ago that called The Power of the Subconscious Mind. It said, whatever you put into your mind before you go to bed, mm. you can it to fruition. For years, I would practice that. One of the last things I would put into my mind would be scriptures surrounding freedom, right? Scriptures surrounding freedom because it was what I wanted most, right, was to be free. If it was a good book, I would, you know, read for an hour at night, hour and a half before I close my eyes. If I catch myself going too quick, I would grab my Bible, or I would grab The Secret, or I would grab any other book that I was reading at the time, and I would internalize and deposit into my subconscious mind. The things that I felt in that book was so important to my soul, right? And to what I wanted to envision for my life. And I would digest these things before I go to bed. And I would wake up. And those things would be the first things on my mind. They would be the things on my mind, the things that I remembered um, most. And I would pray on those things again. And, and this, these things would take me throughout the day, right? My day would be based on what I did the night before, what I put inside you know, my deposits and what I, you know, got up and decided to cash the next day, right? So you deposit that check at night and you cash it in the morning. And you continue to visualize the things that you want. You put you make your vision board, right? And you put it on your wall.
0: That's so beautiful. What is the best advice that you have ever been given?
1: Very good question. Always pray and believe, pray and believe because prayer changes things. I don't care who you pray to, but always pray and believe Mm. because if you're gonna worry, then why pray? If you're gonna pray, there's no need to worry.
0: That's so true. I believe in prayer and I think it is very powerful and, and not always just asking for what you want, but being grateful for what you have, which you kind of mentioned earlier. I wonder what's your favorite prayer?
1: One of my favorite prayer is what I can give to the world, right? Um, it's just asking God to use me as a vessel of honor so that I can impact the lives of others. It's not, it's not just about what I want or my needs or my desires, right? Because I've lived with nothing. So to want an abundance means more to me than physical abundance or material abundance, right? To live an abundant life is to live a life that is spiritually wholesome, spiritually free, Right? To live a life of love. Right? The more love you give, the more you can get. So it's just, you know, giving, giving of myself. And people say, you, you know, you always give it. and I'm always replenished through the spirit. The spirit is, the spirit has no limitations. So I'm always replenished through the spirit. And those are, that's why I take those moments to walk the park by myself because I'm I'm being rejuvenated by the spirit of God. I'm being rejuvenated. So then Monday to Friday, I can give up myself in working to help other people who are in bad situations.
0: What's been your most mystical experience?
1: My most mystical experience, I think, was I used to fast. And the the best fast that I've ever done was for three days, no food and no water. Very, very difficult. But my senses were so keen that one night I was in prison in Queens, right, fighting this case. And I would fast and I would pray and fast and I would pray. And there was an older guy, really big guy, I never forget. He had been in jail for, um, for some domestic violence. And his bail might have been $250. He had to fight with his girlfriend, big argument or something. The bail was $250 and something like that. Said so he had pushed his girlfriend. They locked him up. He was in jail for that. And i never forget, he couldn't make bail. And guys were teasing him and saying, she gave up on you. Everybody will give up on you. That's why you're still in here. And guys would mock him and they would go off on him. This whole day they were doing this, this whole night. He subsequently killed himself that night. And I remember not not soon after that, may have been a week, may have been days, that I was in the cell and I was praying. And as real as you are sitting before me, I saw a shadow that appeared to be him to walk through the cell bars. Now, I don't believe in ghosts. I never seen the ghosts, right? This was probably my first time seeing what appeared to be like the spirit of someone.
0: Yeah, like an apparition.
1: Yes. I was frightened initially. But when I realized that it was it was this this man that had taken his life, I felt safe because I always I gave him words of encouragement prior to that happening. When guys would tease him, I would say, I would tell guys, listen, don't do that, man. You know, you know, today is him, tomorrow is you. And I remember speaking to him the night before he took his life and I gave him a hug. I said, you're going to be all right. You know, he said, I'm sorry. You know, I did some wrong things, but I'm sorry. And he was very apologetic. And I said, you're going to be all right. You're going to get out of here. And, you know, he killed himself then. And days later, I'll never forget it. I locked in the last cell in the back. Then I saw this spirit like move. And. I was traumatized, but then, but then it was like it was like a, a a spirit came over me and said, "You're safe. Just be calm, right? Like nothing. He's not. This spirit's not here to harm you. You were good to him, and I never forgot that. And I'm gonna be honest with you. This is the first time publicly I'm ever made, I'm ever t- telling this to someone.
0: When the spirit came, did anything happen? Did it? say anything to you or make you feel a certain way?
1: It just walked and looked and made me something came over me, let me know I was safe and it just kept moving.
0: Wow.
1: It just kept moving.
0: What's something, Bruce, that you wish for yourself?
1: One of the things I wish for myself is I can make each day of my life better than it was before. And that if by chance, then I can, you know, give a share a kind word share a smile and make someone's day who is feeling that, who is feeling sad. I just want to bring, I want to lift as I climb, pull people up as I strive to be better because people need people. Mm. Um, This idea that people say, I just want independence and I don't need a person or I don't need anyone is I think the biggest lie that's ever been told. The reality is, we all need each other.
2: Mm.
1: Look who you are, look who I am, right? Um, we, we may we may never see each other in life again, right? But we remember this conversation. Mm. And one thing I will remember, and Maya Angelou said this: one thing I will remember is the way that you made me feel tonight, because it's the first time we really interacted ever, right? I couldn't I couldn't get a sense from an email. Or a notice or a message, right? But I know how you make me feel sitting before you, and so I'll always remember that, right? I'll always remember that, and uh, and I hope to do the same for others and make someone else feel comfortable, right? Maybe tomorrow when I go on my way to work, maybe I can make someone's day and give an elderly person my seat and maybe make them smile and make them feel loved and make them feel appreciated. And if I can do that, that's what I want for myself. For my journey, my journey to be one that is not my own, but it can be one that touches the lives of the people that I need, that God puts in my path in a very meaningful and positive way.
0: Mm, Beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you?
1: To me, a life of greatness is a life of purpose, a life of meaning, and a life of just Picking other people up and recognizing and understanding the humanity in each and every one of us, because whether we realize it or not, we're just one big family, and we all want the same things. We all want the same things. You don't want for your family anything different than I want for mine, mm. which is health, happiness, and abundant life—a peaceful life. Right. These are the things that we all want for our
0: ones and for ourselves. Bruce Bryan, I'm so sorry that you had to spend 29 years in prison to be able to tell me this story, but, you know, you are an incredible man that has done so many wonderful things considering you've been out of prison for such a short period of time. So thank you so much for the conversation today. I'm sure you've helped so many, many, many people listening. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for the It's And thank you for for friendship. Thank you for relationship. It means a lot. Thank you so much.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at saragrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.